This is an installation of the Ferris Center Events podcast series brought to you by the Ferris Center for Eastern Mediterranean Studies at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Um, so, one of the impossible tasks is to introduce Rami Khouri. Because it's um, it's it's quite it's quite a challenge. I first met Rami when he was the editor of 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 the Jordan Times, and then as the editor of the uh, uh, Daily Star in Beirut. Uh, he was also the founding director of the Hassan uh, Faris Institute in in Lebanon, and took it from basically made it into the best regional institute, I think, on, on policy affairs. In, in, and I've been observing him and trying to learn from him all my life. Oh dear. Uh, especially that um, when you read Rami's articles, he basically expresses what everybody would like to think. You, you, some of your articles are... are I, I keep reading... Over and over, like the one you like the one you wrote on Samir Asir was, uh, I think, uh, is my fav- my favorite. And uh, Rami is also a fellow at the Belfer Center at the Kennedy School. At uh, you're a fellow at many many places. If we have to list them, up there. Well, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> and you were also a. I was a fellow. Here. You were a fellow here in. Uh, Still being displaced by the great Karim Adesu. Yes. He's yes, taken over my office. <laughs> exactly. Makes me and, proud. And I'd like to also w- uh, welcome Karim Maqdisi, who's our visiting fellow for this semester, who's sitting right there and has, whose publication just arrived on, 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 on Syria, on, the, uh, on diplomacy for the chemical weapons in Syria, which is a very important one. So uh, I will... So let, let, let's start with you giving a few comments, and then we'll, we'll get them to join the conversation. Okay. Thank you, and very welcome. Thank you, Nadim. Thank you uh, all for coming. And uh, if you want to come in, these seats are $5 here, if you want to <laughs> have a, uh, a large seat. At, uh, there's a couple of extra seats here, if anybody wants. Um, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be back at the Fattest Center at Fletcher, at Tufts, and the Boston area, and um, to meet with uh, old friends, Ibrahim, Karim, or Karim, I see him in Beirut, and others, and meet uh, new friends. I'm looking forward to hearing your comments and questions and, and thoughts. Uh, I'll just make some uh, comments for, what, 20 minutes or so, and, um, about the theme, uh, which is from Bush to Obama and beyond, learning and not learning the lessons of Iraq and warfare in the Middle East. Um, so the, um, the the simple uh, point is that the U.S. I think is not learning the lessons of warfare in the Middle East. But it's not just the U.S. To be fair, I'm always surprised by how everybody in the Middle East, especially, and many opinion writers here in the U.S. and Europe, say, "When is Obama going to intervene in Syria? When is the U.S. going to do something about Aleppo?" I don't see why it's the responsibility of the U.S. alone to do that. I mean, the U.S. is responsible for a lot of terrible things that have happened in the Middle East. 
but I think the responsibility for what's happened and the process of not learning from the militarism of the past de uh, several decades is a shared one. Uh, and my basic point is that we have a catastrophic situation across the Arab world. Really, really what I'm talking about is the Arab world. The rest of the Middle East, Israel, Turkey, Iran, has they have their own issues, their own challenges, their own problems, in some cases their own criminal behavior. Uh, the foreign powers have uh, their own problems and criminal behavior. But it's really the Arab world that's in a state of great turmoil, violence, uh, some fragmentation, um, and, and, and significant widespread dysfunction. Uh, so there's, there's an Arab problem um, that is the center of the wider stresses and tensions in the Middle East and the wider region, which, which I call Minasa, which is Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia. The Middle East and South Asia really have to be seen as one uh, context. And the new president, whoever he or she is, is going to inherit a situation in which the United States has been actively at war for 35 years, 35 years uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the Middle East. Um, and this goes back to the uh, beginning of the involvement with the Mujahideen, the Afghan uh, rebels fighting the Russians in <coughs> Afghanistan starting in 79-80, the Beirut uh, barracks bombing in 1983 when America, 241 Americans were killed and, and 58 French soldiers were killed. In the mid-90s, when Al-Qaeda started to take shape, and uh, in 98, when bin Laden issued his fatwa against the West and Israel and the U.S. Um, and then in, in, in August 1998 is when the uh, attacks happened against the U.S. Embassy in Kenya and Tanzania, which were the first major <coughs> dramatic, other than the U.S. barracks bombing. But that was because the U.S. was militarily in Lebanon, they were and they were shelling the mountains of Lebanon. They were part of the conflict, even though they presented themselves as peacemakers, but they were actively involved in some aspects of the war. But in 1998, uh, the Qaeda attacks against the U.S. and East Africa started the process of the U.S. then actively responding uh, with uh, Clinton bombing Sudan uh, and Afghanistan. And, uh, and then after 9-11, you had, well, there's the coal bombing in October 2000, the ship uh, off Yemen, the American uh, carrier was bombed, uh, and then the 9-11 uh, attacks happened, and then the American government and many others uh, launched an operation against Afghanistan. I mean, it's, I think the names are fascinating and relevant to our discussion. The attacks against Sudan and Afghanistan in 1998 were called infinite reach, infinite reach. And the attack against Afghanistan after 9-11 was called Operation Enduring Freedom. So enduring and infinite were the two adjectives that the United States used to describe its militarism. Um, and I think this is ironic because what we've had is nonstop militarism. So it's been enduring uh, uh, warfare. Uh, with, I believe, very few significant, meaningful, and legitimate outcomes. Uh, there's been some, uh, some 
there have been some successes to the American-led war, warfare across the Middle East uh, for these last 35 years or so. Uh, but my point is we, we can't just look at the last 15 years since 9-11. That's the immediate focus of Operation Enduring Freedom and the Global War on Terror and all the different names, the Long War, all the different names that has been given. But it's really 35 years of nonstop active American military involvement across uh, this region. And it's important to assess this because that, that's almost two generations of, of uh, people. That's a long time. We're not talking about four, five, seven years. We're talking about 35 years. We can conclude, I think, conclusively uh, in that time period. I think any rational, honest person can look at this time and say, all right, so what has this achieved? Uh, and I believe it has achieved uh, very little. In, uh, that is positive, that is lasting, and that is legitimate. The, the basic uh, uh, facts of the actual fighting and warfare are quite fascinating. The Council on Foreign Relations did a study, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations did a study uh, recently showing that since January 2015, which is what, a year and 10 months, the United States dropped 23,000 23, bombs on six Muslim-majority countries. Uh, 22,000 of those were in Iraq uh, and Syria. And then you had Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia. Um, Libya has to be thrown in there as well. Um, so there's been 16, that's just in the last year and nine months, 16 years of nonstop warfare in Afghanistan, the longest ever American war. And the Taliban today are in control of more territory than ever since 2001. Um, four consecutive American presidents have been bombing Iraq. And what's the situation now? The US is increasing again the number of troops it sends. It's now back up to around 5,000. They're not always actively involved in the fighting. They are in some cases. They're more like special forces and intelligence or whatever, uh, which is what they did in Vietnam in 1964, and, and we saw what, what happened there. When you start with these kinds of special forces and intelligence and training missions and stuff, uh, they are a sign of a, a essentially an unclear, imprecise, and probably uh, ineffective strategy that has been adopted. And I think the track record of the last 15 years and 35 years confirms that, that these strategies that the United States is using to focus on military action with four consecutive presidents having bombed Iraq continuously and they're still having to bomb and send, uh, send more troops. And then of course the whole cost of the war, uh, the latest estimates by American Brown University just did a study saying $4.8 trillion, that's trillion with a T, $4.8 trillion is the total cost and it's probably actually more than that when you count other stuff. So what do we have? Uh, to show for all this? What does the United States have to show? If you take the basic aims of the global war on terror or American militarism in the region, um, one, protect the United States from being attacked, two, destroy the sanctuaries of terrorist groups around the world, three, destroy Al-Qaeda, which was the first one that sprung up, uh, four, uh, counter violent extremism around the world as much as you can to prevent the growth of these groups, and five, uh, strengthen and protect your allies uh, around the Middle East and Asia and, and the world to, to prevent more 
uh, attacks. Of those, uh, there's other smaller aims, but of those five main ones, only the first one really has been achieved, which has been, by and large, to protect the United States against a major attack like 9-11. There's been smaller ones and lone wolves and things like that. Um, terrorism is actually a, is a very small issue in the United States with a lot of, makes a lot of noise, and it's scary. It's scary because you can just walk down the street and suddenly your bomb, uh, your car blows up or your bus is attacked or something. So it, it scares the daylights out of you, which is what it's supposed to do. Uh, terrorism is supposed to do that, to terrorize uh, civilians and to have the politicians overreact, which is exactly what the United States has done, which is exactly what Al-Qaeda and ISIS wanted them uh, to do, which is a reconfirmation of, I believe, the failed nature of the American military-anchored uh, strategy in the region. But other than protecting the U.S. against a big attack like 9-11, which has been successful through, through many means, um, the other four goals have not been achieved, and the spread of uh, terror groups uh, continues. Al-Qaeda has, has regrouped and expanded and learned its lessons uh, from failed experiments in places like Somalia and other places, and they've learned from their experience in Yemen and now in Syria, and they're, they're operating in a different uh, approach that uh, doesn't, unlike ISIS, imposes itself on communities, but rather tries to integrate with local structures of, of tribal control, civilian control, and uh, legitimate governance, <clears throat> and be part of the local scene, and slowly push people towards Islamist uh, values of life and, uh, and governance. But Al-Qaeda is uh, continuing uh, to grow. ISIS is with us. There's around, you know, five, six, seven hundred uh, small Islamist militant groups all over the region that have uh, come to life, and many of them are fighting in uh, Syria. The, the center of gravity of what's called the global jihad has essentially shifted from Afghanistan, Pakistan, to Syria, Iraq. It's in the heart of the Arab world, which makes it much easier to recruit people, to be financed, to be logistically assisted, and to play on the grievances of populations that allow these groups to continue to thrive and to achieve their uh, their missions, uh, their criminal missions, but this allows them to be more effective if they're anchored in Syria and Iraq rather than in Tora Bora and uh, Peshawar. Um, so the real issue here is why has, to me, the real important issue for the next American president is why has the United States and why have all the Western allies, and why have all the Arab countries, none accepted, none accept, no exceptions, why, have, why has everybody maintained a military first strategy to fight terrorism while totally, virtually totally ignoring the obvious and powerful underlying drivers that gave rise to these terrorist movements through the fomenting of mass disparity, discontent, dysfunction, unmet needs, inequities, subjugation, colonization, occupation, militarization, economic stress, environmental degradation, and a bunch of other things that happened across the Arab world in the last 35 years. I mean, that 35 years is not an accident of time. That 
decade of the 1980s is the critical decade of transition of the modern Arab world, in my view, when the nationalist developmental thrust of the modern Arab world from the 30s to the 70s, 80s, was replaced by the family-run, security-based, military-anchored, one-man life rule that took root in Arab countries uh, essentially in the 70s and, and, and 80s, with Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi and Assads and Ali Abdullah Saleh, Omar Hassan al-Bashir, Zain Abidin bin Ali, uh, Mubarak. You go across the board and you name these guys one by one. And then, of course, you have all the monarchies that have a different form of legitimacy and rule, but essentially have not deviated from the ruling mechanisms of the so-called republics uh, that have denied citizens any significant political participation, have not allowed any seriously representative political accountability and representation to happen in their countries, uh, and have uh, not been able, despite all the human and material wealth of the Arab world, none of the monarchies or the republics have been able to achieve any kind of reasonably credible, sustainable socioeconomic development that was both sustainable and equitable. And so you have situations where countries like Jordan, for instance, or Morocco or other places that had 15% uh, you know, unemployment rates in the 70s still have 15% unemployment rates. 25% youth unemployment 40 years ago still have 25-30% youth unemployment rates. And so there are some nagging structural deficiencies inside the Arab societies, which I believe are a function of <coughs> bad governance, lack of political participation and citizenship rights, lack of accountability, um, lack of any serious uh, mechanisms whereby citizens can share in the process of decision making. And with autocratic governance, uh, being the rule, you then get, with time, you get corruption, you get crony capitalism, then you get massive disparities, small rich groups and large uh, middle income and lower income people, and gradually this is what's happened since the 1980s. Um, and therefore, you've had, uh, going back 35 years, I think a very clear, very um, you can study it, you can put your finger on it, set of underlying drivers of the mass discontent that led to various aspects of life today in the Arab world. Fragmentation, polarization, sectarianization, militarization, refugee flows, mass migration, um, militarism, the decline of central government authority, central governments uh, re retreating from different sectors and, and geographical regions of societies, the rise of non-governmental powers who share sovereignty with governments. So Hezbollah, uh, Hamas, the Houthis, uh, Muqdad al-Sadr, and many others, these groups are like the sovereign states in many ways, uh, without officially having the authority to issue a passport. But other than that, they run parts of their societies like the central state runs uh, a society. And all of these trends, these underlying trends that have brought the Arab world to this situation of uh, great uh, stress and turmoil and, uh, and dysfunction, where we're the world's leading exporters of, of refugees and 
terrorists. I mean, it's, it's, it's an awful situation, but it's not a surprise. Um, and, and we had many early warning signs about this. Um, going back 30, 40 years, I'm just writing an article now about the, the 10 early warning signs, which you can all read in a few weeks when it's done. Uh, but we had many early warning signs, and I just mentioned one or two. The mass migration of the smartest young people in the Arab world starting in the 1970s and 80s. There's tens of thousands of really smart uh, young uh, people who left. Uh, some of them are here in Boston, some of them are in Melbourne, some of them are in London. They're all over the place. Uh, um, and two of them are right here sitting next to me. And you know, so you had you know, the, the best and brightest of our people left the Arab world because they had no future uh, for various reasons. Uh, the rise of the Islamist movement starting in the 1970s, the nonviolent Muslim brothers, and then followed by the uh, violent ones. The Arab uprisings of 2011, an extraordinary early warning sign of mass dysfunction. Uh, all these early warning signs were totally ignored by the Arab rulers and by uh, Western powers. So the main problem today, and I will stop in three minutes with, after this, the main problem today, I believe, for the next American president and for all the leaderships in the region and, and Europe and all over the world, if, they, if we persist in focusing on military responses in an attempt to achieve security against terrorism, or against other problems, we're simply going to aggravate the, the situation, as has happened in the last 35 years. Al-Qaeda was a few hundred people in 1982. Today it's got thousands and thousands of well-trained people and bases all over the region and, and probably cells uh, all over the world. The rise of ISIS itself is an extraordinary story of the transformation of mass dysfunction political autocracy, autocracy and um, uh, misgovernment, bad government, um, foreign militarism and its impact, the consequences of the continued Arab-Israeli crisis and Israeli occupation and colonization of Arab lands. All of these things together with a bunch of other problems in the region, creating mass discontent to the point where thousands and thousands of people in the Arab world would see ISIS as, as a solution to their problems to their life dilemmas. It's quite extraordinary. Serious analyses by people in the region using polling and other methods uh, suggest that somewhere between 4 and 8 percent of people in Arab countries look positively on ISIS. Doesn't mean they're going to join them or support them, and, but they think ISIS is understandable. They think it's protecting Sunnis. They think it's a sign of affirmation of Arab self power, whatever. They have a positive view of ISIS. I mean, 4 to 8 percent of 400 million Arabs, that's a lot of, that's millions and millions of people in the Arab world. So we didn't get to this point just whimsically. Uh, we got to this point because certain decisions have been made over and over again by Arab leaderships, foreign leaderships, in the last 35 years leading to this mass discontent and discomfort to the point where people were existentially fearful of their lives and they had no choice but risk swimming to their death in the Mediterranean, immigrating illegally, or joining um, groups that uh, purported to protect them and give them both dignity and a future life, whether they're Muslim brothers or militant groups or 
tribal groups or whoever they may be, or ISIS and, uh, and Qaeda, uh, or people who just joined the criminal exercise of um, corrupt Arab governments and became part of the system. Some people chose that. Uh, but the, the problem is if we do not acknowledge and start to address these complex underlying problems, and they're very complex and there's, there's many of them, many of them. If we don't start this process at some point, we're only going to see the situation further exacerbated and in 10 years it's going to be 20 to 30 percent of Arab civilians look positively on ISIS or what's going to follow ISIS. I'm working on a small booklet, a book now on the reasons why people follow ISIS, and I've identified around 85, 90 different reasons, distinct, separate reasons why people like ISIS or join it or support it or don't fight it when it comes to them. It's frightening, <coughs> the, this range of reasons why people look positively on ISIS. That, those reasons are an agenda for what has to be reformed and changed in the, in the Arab world. Uh, that's the internal, internally in the Arab world. The Arab-Israeli conflict has its direct and indirect uh, uh, impact. Foreign militarism has its impact. Uh, but the really frightening thing is that none of the Arab countries and none of the foreign countries show any signs of either being able to understand the important role of these underlying drivers or willing to start making policy changes to uh, address them. And that's why I'm rather pessimistic right now. The two presidential candidates in the United States make me more pessimistic to hear what they say. Um, there's no serious discussion anywhere in the Arab world or in the rest of the world about addressing these, uh, these issues. And they basically are issues like statehood, citizenship, governance, economic growth, social justice, environmental conditions, the Arab-Israeli conflict, foreign militarism, uh, the, the legitimacy of governance and statehood, fundamental ABC issues of nationhood, statehood, society, and citizenship that are totally unaddressed and have not been addressed in the modern uh, Arab world. Uh, and therefore, when we uh, look at the current situation uh, in the Arab countries and we look at the presidential candidates uh, in the United States, and we look at policies in Europe, I think we should all be really scared because there's much more dangerous uh, days ahead. <laughs> the more positive side is that these problems that, should sc that scare us now and that should scare us more are all man-made problems. These are not acts of God or acts of nature. These are bad policy decisions by lousy American governments, lousy British and French and European governments, Israeli governments, Russian, Iranian, Arab, everybody's to blame. So we know how we got here. We also know how to get out of here by better policy decisions, by addressing these underlying factors. And it's going to take a long time. You don't turn around a dysfunctional region, a hemorrhaging region, a violent region, a fragmenting uh, and polarizing region like ours. You don't turn it around within two or three years. Uh, but but you, we know how to turn it around, um, and therefore we need to better learn the lessons of the last 15 years of warfare in Iraq and, and the regions, and the lessons are simply that we need to use military and police actions when we can legitimately, and they need to be used, but they can only be successful if they're coupled with serious political and social, environmental and economic 
uh, action on the underlying uh, levels uh, of society so that we, we get out of the situation now where the United States is not leading from the front, not leading from behind, but rather leading in a fog. And I think it's time to end that, uh, that, that really embarrassing legacy, not just of the United States, but of all of the leaderships uh, in the world and, uh, and in the Arab countries as well. Thank you. Look what, look what you've done. They all look very depressed and <laughs> hopeless. No, they, they, they've they, come here to be enlightened by, by your follow-up questions now. <laughs> if you think you're going to be depressed after you hear Rami, you should wait for me to be <laughs> uh, Just a question. I mean, we've been having this discussion for a very long time, of course. Uh, you, my, overall, you, your, your story is that you know, there are bad governance and you know, the Arab world is full of bad things and bad economics and bad this and bad that. And there's some failed American militarism which, which you know makes it which exasperates this, makes it worse. Basically that's that's the story. I, I you know as as we've discussed a lot, I think you you're underplaying much larger structural issues that go back for at least a hundred years. And we're set we're celebrating or lamenting the Balfour hundred years of Balfour, a hundred years of uh, you know dividing up the the, the, the Levant and the Mashre and you know, all, all the imperial problems and colonial problems and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and to talk about Mubarak or Ben Ali without talking about how they've been protected from day one from citizens and from civil society movements and from leftist movements and communist movements and, and all this kind of thing, well before you even got to Islamist movements. And, and explaining Islamist movements as a continuation of leftist and nationalist movements that were crushed largely by the British, the French, and the Americans. So if all of these uh, are, are much more important in explaining where we are today rather than on, I think, focusing on you know, why does Lebanon or, or uh, Egypt not have good governance because that's, that's, that's so, far, you know, so far into it and there's so many other issues that, that you cannot have good policy makers. You know better than me. And you can't have, uh, if you get a good policy maker somewhere, what, you know, the, what, what context are they working in? It's, it's a very, you know, so it's an impossible context. And this is true throughout the world. It's not just in the Arab world that there's bad governments. So the, the, you know, what, what I'd like you to clarify, if you can, is, is how important some of these structural issues are. I mean, in the 1980s, there was uh, the IMF and neoliberalism that came in that forced, that really pushed. Don't answer, don't answer your own question. Yeah, no, no, but just this last one. Which is <laughs> you're you're, you're, you're leading him on. It pushes in and it, it allows you know, for all these uh, yes. very, very bad economic structural problems from you know, making the state go away and public services and all this kind of thing. So just yeah. well, you're you're right as always. The, the, these issues that I mentioned were only looking at the current, the immediate causes of the current situation, um, um, and they do have much older origins. Clearly, so we can. I mean, you went back a hundred years. We can go back two hundred years to Napoleon. We can go back to the Crusades. We can go back to Alexander the Great. So this idea of Western imperial uh, domination, penetration, manipulation of our region for various reasons. The Arab-Israeli conflict I mentioned several times as an important element, even though it doesn't get a lot of attention these days. Um, the, clearly, these are all factors. But I sense that the, if, the, if, if there was a serious attempt by people in Arab countries to make transitions to genuinely sovereign sustainably developing equitable societies, they could have done it, I think, in some cases. 
I don't know if Western powers and the Israelis and the Russians or others were constantly trying to prevent that from happening. It's possible, but I don't, I don't see the evidence of that. I, I think, you know, people around the world were able to break out of imperial Western domination and develop uh, their own uh, prosperous uh, sovereign societies in some places in East Asia and uh, some parts of uh, South America maybe. But um, so yeah, clearly the past has a huge role to play. Now, what makes us different from uh, Vietnam or Chile or South Korea? What makes us different are essentially three things. That we were the core, us, we were you mean the region, the Arab yeah. world. The, we were the pivot of the imperial trade links and military links to, to Asia and to Africa. So the Middle East was strategically important to the British and the French. Second of all, the Arab-Israeli conflict and its implications and its causes. And third of all, the uh, question of oil. I mean, these are the three things that set us apart, I think, from the rest uh, of the world. Therefore, I think because of these three things, we became and continue to be, with the slight exception of Tunisia, the only chronically and totally non-democratic part of the world. All the other parts of the world that had been non-democratic, like much of South America, much of East Asia, transformed over time, over the last 50 years. Many of them transformed into democratic societies. We didn't. Um, so that's probably related to these three uh, causes. And the eager support that foreign powers, the Russians and the Americans, and now the Iranians as well, give to autocratic regimes. So clearly foreign manipulation, foreign militarism, which I mentioned, is part of this process. But I, I just can't imagine that no Arab country in the last 40, 50 years was able to break through and run a decent society. Whether this is uh, due to foreign uh, determination to keep us like it is, I don't know. But if it is, then we're going to be like this forever, and worse and worse things are going to happen, which I can't imagine. But you see, the, the Arab uprisings were a very important signal uh, of what people wanted. Um, and we saw this has never happened before at a mass scale in the Arab world, where individual people went out on the streets and expressed their desires for what they want and what they don't want. And what they expressed they want was, exp was expressed in just in abstract nouns, like freedom, justice, I want to live, um, uh, I want life. Uh, but we know what that means, that they didn't want to live under the autocratic, military-based, family-run, uh, corrupt, foreign-supported uh, regimes that had run the Arab world for the previous 40 years. We know that's very clear. So I think there's enough signs that people in the Arab world want to make this transformation but they haven't been able to. Why? Historians are going to have to uh, tell us that. I think that what we can do is just try to analyze our own societies and identify those issues, or those trends, those forces at play, and see which one of them might be the actual most important ones. But this is an ongoing uh, process, and, and, and it, it will continue. I mean, Egypt today, if you look at Egypt, there's extraordinary stuff going on under the surface in Egypt. Uh, discontent and people trying to express themselves in different ways, but unable to do so because we continue to have massive foreign and Arab, like the Saudis supporting the, and the Gulf countries supporting the Egyptian government as well as Western countries. Um, you still have um, uh, serious forces at play to maintain the status quo and not let it 
uh, change. Right. Um, yes. <coughs> Tom. My question goes back to, you talked a lot about these underlying drivers of the conflict, and you mentioned things from you know, the Arab-Israeli conflict, you mentioned economic growth, and you can go into other things in terms of the educational system, etc. My question is, though, where, where do you even begin with all of this? I mean, it's very, you know, it's very easy, I think, to say, okay, these things are just misunderstood. Uh, my question is, first, you know, where do you actually begin with it? And then, two, is this actually a, a product of misunderstanding? Or is it more different interpretations and then different interests? What do you mean, misunderstanding? Who misunderstanding what? So we've talked to, I think if I remember from the beginning, we talked about how uh, the Arab world in some ways of these drivers of conflict can right. be misunderstood. Misunderstood so by, of, you mean the West doesn't understand? Perhaps, the, or maybe yeah. you know, the Arab world itself, etc. My question is, where do you start with all these different things? And then two, is it a product of misunderstanding, or is it a product of different interests aligned with political systems and those kinds of things? Well, it's not misunderstanding. I don't think I used that word. I think it's a refusal to acknowledge them, to come to grips with them, to make the effort to see why is it the Arab world is like it is. But can I add, can I add to what Tom is saying? You seem to leave no room of, of, to the West to do anything right, because... It's it's damned if they do and damned if they don't. So no, so, I didn't say that. Well, uh, that, that's that's what I wanted to clarify. Yeah, because, yeah. No, no, I don't. Because I don't there are that. I mean, because, for example, there are errors of omission, like not intervening in '91 when Saddam was uh, massacring the people in the south and in in the north, like not supporting the Syrians, not protecting the Syrian population. So there are there are times when when there were. Uh, errors of intervention, and there are yes. times when there are yeah. interve non-intervention. So, could they all be wrong? Right. No, no. I'm not blanketly blaming the yeah. West. And as you saw, I carefully said we can't just blame the Americans or the West. I mean, we are, Arab autocratic leaderships are the core of this problem. Western support is a critical part. Iranian, Russian, Saudi—you know—other people supporting <laughs> these autocrats are important. The Arab-Israeli conflict, and so I, I see this blame being shared widely among many different factors. So it's not a, a misunderstanding; it's a refusal to even attempt to say the Arab world is like it is because of these 25 different underlying reasons. It's really scary if you're a government official, whether Arab or foreign, to say, "Well, where do I start? How do I deal with this problem? What do I do about you know the fact that?" 25-30% of university graduates are unemployed in Arab countries, whereas only 8% of uneducated people are unemployed. That is, you know, if you want to get a job, don't go to school. That's the message that you get in some Arab countries. Or 45% on average, 45% on average of mid-primary and mid-secondary school students in Arab countries do not know how to read and write and do basic math. They are in school, but they're not learning anything. 25 million people almost are out of school who should be in school in Arab countries. We're talking about 40 to 50 million young Arabs between the ages of 6 and 20. 45 to 50 million people that age are either not in school or in school and learning nothing. They're going to get out of school or they're already out of school. They can do nothing in life other than wash a car or clean a dish or carry vegetables in the market or, or sweep the floor somewhere or just be a, a manual laborer on a farm. And this is one of this is, these are the cumulative problems that give rise to this mass 
desperation that lead to things like the uprisings, like the migration, like the terrorism, like the, the desperation that we see. So there's a linkage between all of these things. Where do you start? What is the role of foreign governments? My sense is that the first place to start, which is the one thing that's never ever been done, is first talk to your own people. Ask the people in these Arab countries, what do they want? What do they want? Do they want piped water in their houses? Do they want a decent job? Do they want good education for their kids? Or do they want an independent judiciary? If they could choose one of those four things tomorrow, which one do they want? We just don't know that today. But what we do know is that we will only make progress on changing this dysfunctional, dangerous situation in the Arab world if we, first of all, allow people, our own citizens, to express themselves. So the very first thing that must be done, in my view, is to have some way to guarantee freedom of expression. If you don't allow people to express their grievances or contribute positively to ideas about how to make these transitions, we're never going to get anywhere. So that's, that's the, f the first thing. Now, it's not easy to do that. How do you make freedom of expression under, you know, field marshal turned president for life CC? It's just, it's not so easy to, you know, it's easy for me to say these things. What else we need, of course, we need the rule of law. We need an independent judiciary. And, of course, you need socioeconomic growth. Now, these things usually complement each other. They, they come together in societies that develop normally. They haven't come together in our societies because we've never developed normally. We've been abnormally ruled, and we've turned into dysfunctional societies. Those that have a lot of money from oil have done reasonably well, some of them, but others, even they're in trouble now because they've had to cut back spending and all kinds of things are happening. Contracts are not being paid. and uh, So we have uh, serious stresses in our societies that are manifesting themselves in deviant behavior, criminal behavior, and desperate behavior by ordinary citizens as well as by uh, the political class. There absolutely is a role for the U.S. and foreign governments. There, there absolutely is a role for the, and the role of the U.S. and foreign governments is to first of all engage with the people of the region and not only speak to politicians in power. That's not easy to do. Sovereign rules of engagement sometimes, you know, don't let you do that. So, but, but I think people have to make an effort to do it. The United States did that when they were dealing with the refuseniks in Russia. I remember, you're all too young to remember, but I remember in the 1970s and 80s, the U.S. went out of its way to go talk to the refuseniks in Russia who were challenging the Soviet regime, even though the Soviets didn't like it. Uh, so you can do that. You can go and talk to the labor unions in Egypt. You can go and talk to the democracy activists in Jordan and Morocco and Kuwait. Uh, and if their governments don't like it, they're tough bananas. You tell them, well, you know, you want our billion dollars in aid or $600 million in aid or free trade, that you need to work with us on these issues and not because we, the United States, want it, because your own people want these things. And we know they want it from public opinion polling, from their voting in elections, from what they write in the press and from the uprisings that, uh, that have happened. So the critical, critical first step is to allow the people of our countries to express themselves. And then we'll know what they want. They might say, look, we want Islamic government, or we want Arab tribal rule, uh, or, or we want a monarchy, or we want whatever they want, as long as it's legitimate and peaceful, and they have majority rule in protecting minority rights, then they should do whatever they want. Uh, but None of this has ever happened. So there needs to be mechanisms whereby foreign governments 
engage inside Arab governments more on the basis of what the citizens would like to see happen than only what autocratic, self-imposed, dictator-for-life governments uh, want to happen. And this has not changed. It's still uh, the situation. <clears throat> Thank you for your overview. Um, sorry, you I'm sorry, sorry. largely presented the situation in the Arab world as um, one in which uh, the Arab population is uh, uh, suffering from the consequences of dismal foreign policies of major powers, uh, and also from what you call abnormally uh, being abnormally ruled uh, for a long time. Uh, and your colleague uh, goes even further in history as presenting the Arab world is again being victims of uh, this path dependency from terrible foreign influence. Uh, but I know that uh, you believe in individual agency, yet in your narrative there is no room for individual agency. So if you allow me to be provocative, let me turn around the flip, notwithstanding the amazingly bad job that foreign powers have uh, done in the region. What if instead the situation is largely the result of uh, the Arab people's inability so far, um, as some other uh, populations in the past uh, dealt with their own problems, but the current challenges of answering how democracy can live together with Islam, uh, how um, societies can accept pluralism uh, and therefore uh, live uh, in this uh, new post-industrial attitude where multiple confessions, multiple ethnicities can live as a nation. Uh, and the third is a culture of wasta, changing the clientelistic relationship that is vertical to an horizontal one of a citizen and doing a, a social contract. Uh, because other peoples in the world have been ruled by dismal governments, uh, the monarchies, elsewhere, and yet they were able to overcome them. So my question is, uh, isn't it possible that what we see is actually the result of these inabilities so far to address within the Arab population these challenges, these questions, which then, of course, leave the room for foreign powers to instrumentalize these challenges and these divisions and uh, keep them in this uh, state of uh, underdevelopment and uh, constant war? So I wonder if you see uh, individual agency being able to change this and if you buy in this uh, reversed uh, approach. Well, if I understood you right, um, it's okay. you're saying that there's something in the Arab character or society or something, values, whatever, I don't know what, that has prevented us from making the kinds of changes that others have made who also suffered oppression and, and, and oppressive rule. And why did we not make those changes? No, I don't think it's a permanent failure. I think it's a challenge. But it's a challenge that is kind of uh, pending um, resolution. Uh, a, a people is presented with a challenge and will constantly struggle with it until they decide to address it. Right. And I think that the Arabs are now presented with challenges, the first of which is to figure out how to uh, reconcile uh, a religion that is all-encompassing with uh, democratic governance structures. Uh, I, then, and the other two are pluralism, the third is Wasta. There are probably others, but these are the ones I see. Yeah, I, I reject all three of those as premises for starting to talk about why Arab countries have not been able to do this. They may be factors in some people's lives, but I don't think they're the reasons 
um, why they ha we haven't been able to make a breakthrough for democratic, pluralistic, uh, self-reliant uh, change. I don't, I don't uh, agree with you at all on that. I think the uh, because you can see, you know, it has nothing to do with religion because you can see uh, Muslims all over the world doing extraordinary things. So there's nothing in Islam as such, which is the dominant religion, um, that that uh, is is a problem. Um, and I don't think it's a question of wasta, because wasta is basically something that emerged as a response to the inability of these societies to give their people citizenship rights and equal opportunities. Therefore, people had to depend on wasta. And the, the issue of pluralism, I think, is a total... Uh, um, um, it, the lack of pluralism, I believe, is a consequence of these other problems that we've... We've suffered. I think if you went to the Arab world in the 1930s, um, you would have seen a lot more pluralism. If you had been in Alexandria or Cairo or Damascus or, or even maybe Jeddah, I'm not sure, I wasn't there then. But uh, So pluralism, I've lived my whole life, the last 50 years of adult life in the Arab world. I don't think that pluralism is a problem in our societies. I, don't, I just don't believe it at all. Uh, it is now. We have sectarianism, we have militarism, we have polarization, we have violence, we have people doing terrible things, ethnic cleansing, but these are not inherent in our societies as structural values that have impeded us in our desire to transition to pluralistic, democratic, stable, productive, and growing societies. So I, I, the problems you mentioned I see as symptoms of the modern uh, legacy that we've uh, we've suffered. So again, this is a kind of chicken and egg. We can have this argument for uh, for years. So why is it that we're like this? Um, I've given you, you know, my views, and I think it's just a question that we were never. So people have tried in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, repeatedly all across the Arab world, in Morocco, and Kuwait, and Lebanon, and Jordan, and Palestine. They've tried to break through. They've tried to get. Uh, independent judiciary, free press, democratic governments, uh, re parliaments that actually represent people rather than just the regime. They've tried, but they were never allowed to by their own systems and by the foreign support that came into those systems. So how do we break through this is the big, is the big question. How's your back? Hi, uh, thank you for your great insights. Two questions. The first, uh, you mentioned that you know, ISIS is better operated in uh, Iraq and Syria than other parts of the region. So ISIS operation has moved from those two countries from the, the other countries you mentioned. I forgot which one. Well, I was talking about Al-Qaeda more than ISIS, but really what they call the global jihad, which started with Al-Qaeda, and now ISIS is one <coughs> dimension of that. Right, so you said that the, the organization is better operated in those two new countries there. Uh, you mentioned Iraq and other Syria. and. I just, can you elaborate on a little bit more on that? The second question is, the China is trying to evolve and expanding its influence in the Middle East. They just had a relationship with uh, Iran, and they're, overall, they're trying to uh, increase their role. So how do you see it as a China, how do you see China as a newcomer to the region? China? Yeah, th th that's the second question. We haven't seen China in the region at all to any significant extent uh, other than uh, commercial trade and, um, and uh, raw materials uh, relationships, uh, mining and etc. Um, the Chinese got involved a little bit in the naval protection against pirates in the 
um, off Somalia. But other than that, the Chinese have been extremely low-key. Um, I wish they would get more involved because they would bring a fresh face, but we don't know how they would behave, whether they would just join the Europeans and Russians and Americans and Iranians and maintaining the status quo so they could just do their mining and trading and selling us sneakers and, and uh, plastic dishes, or whether they would actually come up with something more noble uh, that um, promotes um, the dignity and well-being and equality of all human beings. So we don't know anything about China's foreign policy because they don't actually exhibit one in the Middle East beyond the very basic platitudes about we don't interfere in people's government, etc., etc. They've made noises now and then about, you know, trying to be involved in the Arab-Israeli issue or something, but the, so I think we have to wait uh, on that. Japan is another one. I wish the Japanese would get more involved, but they don't, uh, they don't seem to be interested. The question of ISIS and Qaeda, if I understood it, um, ISIS and Qaeda are reactions to bad conditions. Why didn't we have ISIS Qaeda in the 1930s and 40s and 50s and 60s and, and 70s? I mean, this is a question we have to keep asking ourselves. Why did we get into this situation now? Why weren't we like this in the 50s and 60s and 70s? Um, and we weren't like this. Uh, I mean, there was some, there was always Islamist movements and Islam as an identity, nationalism as an identity, Arabism as an identity, and now you have global corporate globalization as an identity. All of these things are constantly competing against each other within the Arab societies for people's allegiance, uh, and people will express an identity that gives them what they want. Um, and so ISIS and Al-Qaeda are extreme reflections of extremely difficult uh, grievances that people have suffered. Um, they're criminal activities. They're absolutely unacceptable. But they're not, uh, they didn't just come out of a vacuum. And before you had Al-Qaeda and ISIS, you had decades and decades of nonviolent Islamist mainstream movements, like the Muslim Brothers, like others. Um, and before that, you had the Arab nationalists. And before that, you had you always had some lefties and progressive parties and some communists. And, uh, but none of them could make a breakthrough. None of them could share power, contribute to decision making with that small circle of soldiers, mostly soldiers, who ran these countries with the enthusiastic support of foreign countries. Nobody could break that monopoly of power and authority. And, and uh, this was okay. In this, okay this, these societies didn't implode like they're imploding now before because from the 30s to the mid-80s, most people in most Arab countries were seeing improvements in their life, in their daily life well-being. Schools were being built, hospitals, jobs were created. Most people were seeing their lives improve. Uh, there was poverty pockets, they had problems, but, but for the majority, life was getting better from the 30s to the mid-80s. It was really in the mid-80s that this trend started to reverse, and it's really since the mid-80s, the early mid-80s, that we have these serious regressive changes in the Arab countries that have led us to the situation that we have today, which have interacted with the Arab-Israeli conflict and its consequences 
and foreign militarism. And I say foreign militarism, not just Western militarism, because now you have the Iranians, the Turks, and the Russians actively fighting with their jets and their artillery and stuff. It's an extraordinary situation in northern Syria where you've got every possible fighting force in the world except for the Chinese and the Japanese. Uh, they're all there fighting each other. Uh, and um, the, the, this, this happened because of this history, modern history of regression and, and population growth vastly outstripping economic growth. So the Arab population was 60 million people in 1930. It's 400 million today, from 60 million to 400 million. I mean, there's nobody in the world has experienced this kind of uh, population growth. Um, and, and, and most people's lives were improving until the 1980s. After the 1980s, you started to get the reverse, where more and more people started to see their life quality deteriorate. And the reason people exploded in the in 2000 and uh, 11 is between 2003 and 2010, there was a clear tracking in polling and studies that people did, which the leaderships of the Arab and foreign governments completely ignored. There was clear tracking of discontent rising among large numbers of the populations because they were not able to improve, to see their lives improving, and they saw that their children were doomed to lifetimes of poverty, unemployment, marginalization, vulnerability. And, and it's this sense of no longer being able to expect their lives to improve that caused people to explode. It wasn't just that they were poor or that they were oppressed. Many people have been poor and oppressed for decades, but they didn't rise up in a revolution. Uh, so the lack of the perception that your life can get better, when that perception ended, people then exploded and started doing uh, uh, crazy things. So it's very, it's a complex situation, but Canada and ISIS are partly a response to these trends, as well as the foreign militarism. Canada, of course, was driven by two foreign military presences in Islamic countries. The first was the Russians in Afghanistan, the second was the Americans in Saudi Arabia. It was two foreign military presences in Arab in Islamic countries, not Arab countries, Islamic countries, and that's what where Qaeda was born. And then it changed, and became fighting against uh, the West mostly and and Arab uh, and Arab regimes. But the proliferation of these groups now in Syria, in particular, is quite stunning. Uh, there's there's hundreds and hundreds of these small Islamist uh, militant jihadi. Uh, groups. Uh, I don't think these are part of the future of the Arab world. I don't think the majority of Arabs want to live under jihadi rule. But if there's nobody to protect you from barrel bombs or American jets or Russian jets or Iranian proxy forces, uh, and these are the only guys on the ground, the jihadis who come and say, we'll protect you, and by the way, here's a bakery and we'll give you bread, then you're going to say, come on in and help us out, we need protection. Uh, and this is exactly what's uh, happening to, in, to, to, to some extent in some, uh, some places. I think the Qaeda and, uh, and, and ISIS are a very important mirror in which we can see the underlying problems in Arab uh, societies. And the real challenge is how to start addressing them. The question you asked earlier, where do you start? It's really hard.
it's really hard. But I think if people signal, if governments and foreign governments and our governments signal to their people that we understand we need to address these issues and start with one or two things, then the process can uh, can proceed. Claire, you had a... Yeah. I want to continue the conversation on the role of force in Syria. The what? The role of force in Syria. So you started out the conversation discussing um, how skepticisms of continued foreign or U.S.-led military interventions in Syria, um, considering the history for the last 35 years of U.S. militarization in the region. Yeah. And then you ended on this note of... Um, Military interventions are sometimes necessary if coupled with certain political, economic, social factors, etc. And so I'm wondering if you can talk more specifically about what you would see as an effective, um, expanded military intervention in Syria. Who would it be led by? And specifically, um, what uh, your analysis of the utility of a no-fly zone, the role of the Gulf, and the role of NATO yeah. in Syria. Great question. And can I add no to fly zone? Can I the add role of the Gulf yeah. and the role of NATO? The role and of militarism. Yeah. If, if you think that an expanded military intervention in Syria would be helpful in ending the war, what would it look like? And if you don't, why is it not effective? To did you that way? Did you get that? Yeah. Uh, can I add to this? Because you just said that uh, the proliferation of jihadis, Al Qaeda, and ISIS is because people want protection. So another way of putting Claire's question is, should we protect the people by military intervention as well? That, that's you know, it's very hard to answer that I, because you know you need a clairvoyant to be able to say if you if you uh, if you have a uh, no-fly zone in some area, it's going to lead to this and to this. We just don't really know the consequences of that. I do say there are some times when military intervention is legitimate. It was certainly legitimate to drive Iraq out of Kuwait when they invaded Kuwait. I don't see a problem with that. It was certainly legitimate to go to a short, uh, to a limited extent, say, to attack the Qaeda bases after they attacked the United States in 2001. Uh, you know, sir, police actions, military actions that have a, a target, a certain limit, uh, and a certain legitimacy are part of life. Uh, we're not uh, pacifists. We live in societies where sometimes you need to use uh, force. But endless force or enduring force or eternal and perpetual force, as the Americans have been using, uh, isn't uh, the answer. So how do you use force in Syria? I think force is not... Uh, if you can get a legitimate international agreement on a no-fly zone in Syria, which the Syrian people want, then it's something that probably should be attempted. Whether the, it leads to more fighting rather than less fighting, I don't know. I mean, what would the Russians uh, say? Uh, well, maybe we should test them. Uh, so this depends on your willingness to use military action as a political guessing game. Um, you need to use military force in some, uh, in some cases. Uh, the problem in Syria is now, I think, that there are so many forces at play. You mentioned some of them, the Iranians, the Gulf, the NATO, the Russians, the Americans, and, and then, of course, the Syrians themselves. It's very hard to know what the Syrians want because they're scattered and they're all over the place. The opposition is totally uh, ununified. There's so many groups. So it's very hard to say, well, here's what the Syrian people want. Here's what the Syrian opposition wants. You have ISIS. You have the 
former Nusra guys, the Jabhat, uh, what's it called, Fath Hashem. Uh, you have uh, you have uh, many other uh, uh, Islamist jihadi groups, and then you have the secular uh, nationalist uh, opposition militant uh, groups, the Free Syrian Army, and many of those. And then you have dozens and dozens of tribal groups and local groups. We, we know that I think it's I uh, we don't know. I feel that the majority of Syrians do not want to live under jihadi rule, and we had a glimpse of this uh, four, three four months ago when. There was a brief, one of the first ceasefires, and immediately in the Idlib region, people immediately started coming out and demonstrating against the Qaeda guys and the Islamists, mm -hmm. saying we want peaceful, democratic transition. Uh, so I think there's no doubt that, about that. If, if people in the Arab world wanted jihadi rule, they would have asked for it years ago, and, uh, and they didn't. But jihadis basically, and jihadis could only come in when there was chaos. And the chaos was usually created by foreign military intervention. Libya, Iraq, Syria, to some extent Yemen and Somalia. And foreign military intervention doesn't mean only the Americans. The Russians had something to do with it in some places. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, the, the jihadis, nobody's ever voted in al-Qaeda. Nobody's ever elected ISIS. They come in when there's a mess and they... Uh, it's like gang warfare. When there's chaos in the street, if a gang moves in and restores order, everybody uh, goes along with it. But these are not uh, groups that, uh, that people want. But foreign militarism strikes me historically in the modern period now as, and, and, and going back 100 years as more of a problem than, uh, than a solution. And so I don't see any easy answer uh, to your question. How come the Russians know exactly what to do when and they don't get confused and they, they, they just give the, the Americans one hour notice and they bomb? Uh, whereas, whereas you're making it sound so difficult for uh, any, any uh, Western uh, uh, force to intervene to protect the population in, in Syria. It's not difficult. It's just that they're willing to... But you're saying they, that they want international consensus, they want uh, agreement from the Syrian people. You're making... You've, you've piled it on, uh, it, whereas if the Russians, they, they just decide and they go. Right, because they don't send their uh, leaders to come and get degrees at the Fletcher School. They don't send their <laughs> so, rulers to come and get PhDs in the United States and, and make yeah. pronouncements about democratic pluralism and freedom and democracy and, uh, and human rights. They play hardball, and America plays softball usually, and when they play hardball, they play hardball uh, with a broken bat, and they don't do it very well. I mean, American militarism in the region, as far as I can tell, in the, like I said, in the last 35 years, has only brought about bad results in most cases, with a few exceptions. So uh, the U.S. can absolutely go in tomorrow and do a fly free and no-fly zone in northern Syria, and you, maybe you should call the bluff of the, of the Russians and see what they do. I don't know if the Russians would want to have risk an all-out confrontation with the United States. I know Putin would certainly be willing to do it. I'm not sure the American political leadership or the political class or the population would like to do it. The, the U.S. people and government didn't even want to fire a few missiles in Syria when they had chemical weapons used three years ago. And so there's a great reluctance in the U.S. to get into warfare in the Middle East, and I understand that, and, and, and broadly, uh, I, I support it. Uh, so I think the question is, has to be, uh, we need a much more 
diligent effort to find non-military solutions to some of these problems, it's not easy. Uh, it, and, and if the Russians and the Iranians and the Saudis and the Turks to a certain extent are now going to basically use their military power any way they want and the hell with international law and the hell with the UN Charter, and uh, that creates bigger problems for Western countries who, who try to play within the rules uh, of the game. But this is one of the f new factors, by the way, which makes things now much more difficult. You have the regional powers who are actively involved in warfare and, and political action, the Turks, the Iranians, and the Saudis primarily, the Qataris, UAE a little bit, but the Turks, the Saudis, and the Iranians are now actively involved in military warfare and regional power politics in a way that they didn't do so overtly before, they did it more quietly. And this creates much more uh, a complicating factor. And who are the Russians trying to play footsies with? The Turks, the Iranians, and at some point the Saudis even. Uh, I have three more questions. So I'm going to, if I may, take the three together so that you put that. So, uh, one and then, and then the and then we have uh, Karim. You wanted no? Oh, okay, then then Brahim. So Brahim and uh, my favorite was the International Security Studies Program. And kind of uh, follow up the question on the, on the use of force. You, know, you, you talked about how it just what I what I understand why would summarize your words is democracy is kind of the answer. You know, more representative you know, government that is working for the people earns your trust. But the governments in the region don't seem to have a, a, an interest or a desire to do that. They're very much autocratic and trying to for their self-preservation. So the way to do that would be some type of leverage or force requiring some international intervention at some level, whether it be military or be political. My question is, where do you see in any particular issue uh, where there could be some broad international consensus? Where can the Russians, the Iranians, the Turks, and the Americans, the Brits, the French, Saudis come together? Is there any one particular issue in your, your analysis where that could be that starting point you talked about earlier. Okay. Do you want to and, take and, that? And, and Brahim, do you want yeah. to? Yeah. Uh, I like your analysis quite a bit, but I think there's one way in which one can reframe it, which is uh, asking the question, how come such a dysfunctional system uh, perpetuates itself? Mm. And I think one way of answering that is this whole uh, intellectual and rhetorical dominance of the concept of a war on terror, mm -hmm. which provides its own alibi in terms of uh, being self-justifying, as well as uh, uh, benefiting a number of people. Because every government that declares a war on terror gains politically. So the policy is absurd, but the politics of waging a war on terror is very rewarding for any politician. We've seen, for example, recently in France after the terrorist attacks, the ways in which the government has benefited from uh, uh, basically borrowing a page from George W. Bush's uh, playbook uh, in terms of uh, a war on terror, whereas the concept itself is absurd when you look at it because terror is a tactic. It's not, it's not a designated enemy. So the interesting question is uh, to ask, again, first of all, who benefits from this uh, war on terror? And you have all incumbent governments everywhere, yes. with no exception. Yeah. And certainly, mm -hmm. right now, in the Middle East, uh, I, my work focuses more on the financial aspects. But every government that I can think of in the region has its own financial war on terror, with its own designated enemies uh -huh. uh, that are excluded from the financial system. So there is this. There is 
the incumbent government, there's the fact that um, the weapons business is very profitable and very right. successful. And then you have, uh, on the receiving end, uh, governments that benefit from the strategic rents that the war on terror provides. Because mm -hmm. if you're perceived, just like in the days of the Cold War, as uh, if you're on the right side, just on the, right, on the side of the war on terror, then you have some goodies that come your way as governments, etc. Mm -hmm. And another thing that Karim had been mentioning earlier, which I think is very important, is the role of international organizations and the rhetoric of neoliberalism and the role of development banks, etc., whereby if you promise reform, then you're given a pass. So uh, lots of governments play that game, kind of, we, we pretend to reform and you pretend to support us, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you have... There's a third one? Is there, there was a third from Karim, but I think he's... I mean, I can... I, I think Bahim uh, put, put it well in the end. I actually just had a comment on, on the question, because it comes up a lot. And maybe, Rami, you can, you can uh, clarify this more. But the question of uh, pluralism, I, I just... I mean, it's, it's important to remind that the Levant and the Mesha in particular is the birthplace of pluralism. So the idea of anybody internationally sort of talking about pluralism in a region which has been decimated, including the French and the British and the American, to come and talk about pluralism is, you know, really rankles when you're coming from the region because it's something that's, uh, that, that goes beyond, I mean, that, you really do have to get into the history there and understand how is it we get to the point where in Syria, where there are, you know, and Lebanon and Syria and, that, and Iraq and all these things where there are Christians and Muslims and, uh, uh, you know, Lebanon has what, 17 different sects? 18. Eighteen. So <laughs> this is the birthplace where pluralism comes from, and it's precisely French and British and American policies that have done away with it. And, uh, and not to say it's only the West, so I'm not accused of uh, the Saudis are, you know, very, very much to blame, especially in the last several years and last 10 years. And very is this a, que a question? Or yeah, well, the clarification yeah. from Rami maybe on this yeah. Yeah. Let me just to clarify that I never implied that actually these traits that I uh, talked about earlier are intrinsic. Not at all. And I don't believe actually in any champion in the world. Mm -hmm. Look at what's happening in Western societies in Europe right now with tolerance, tolerance in Hungary uh, or in the United States. Uh, the society is changing, not in the right direction, I believe. Uh, so I don't believe they're universal champions, and I don't believe that there are societies that reach, uh, that have intrinsic qualities. So not at all. Yeah. I was misunderstood. But I believe that a people can be confronted with challenges at a time in history, and either they confront them or they don't, and they keep on lingering in that state. So this is all that I meant. Yeah. Well, thank you. Don't forget the first one. No, What's I wrote the point it of consensus? Well, the yeah. first one's the most difficult, that your question, and it's very important. I think the answer is there, I don't see any common meeting point right now for the major regional and global powers because they're all fighting each other. What the hell can they meet about? They can't even agree on a two-day pause for humanitarian evacuation of sick kids. I mean, it's incredible. So what you're seeing is a level of brutality and barbarism and violence that uh, is really uh, conducted by all of the parties. There's nobody that we can let off the hook here. But by all of the parties, you mean the United States as well? I mean, in, in different ways, the West yes. as well, because, because they, They're the not brutality doing... you're seeing in Aleppo, I mean, let's clarify, the brutality you're seeing in Aleppo 
is not conducted by any of the Western powers or Turkey or Saudi Arabia or... That's right. Saying, yeah. So yeah, but Aleppo is one corner of a yeah. problem that's been going on for years and years. If you take Gaza, for instance, and what the West has done with the Israelis in Gaza, mm -hmm. if you look at the human suffering, if you look at the stunting, the kids in Gaza are stunted. They're an inch shorter than they should be at the age of seven. And that's because the Israelis put a siege and American politicians vote 100 to 0 in the Senate to support it. So that's barbarism. That's yeah. political barbarism. And then there's the barrel bombs, which are barbarism by the Assad regime. And then the Russians do their thing. The Iranians, what the Saudis and others are doing in Yemen is barbarism. Uh, some of the stuff the Turks are doing, I'm sure, would fall into that category. So I, you know, I don't excuse anybody. There's nobody that comes out of this looking good. They're all doing really terrible things. And they all justify it with various reasons that they say they can justify on the grounds of national security or self-preservation or self-defense or whatever they call it. So I just don't see a meeting place. And this is where we need somebody to step into this very difficult problem and at least to lower the, I mean, lower the temperature, reduce the level of military fighting, probably have the uh, unofficial temporary uh, uh, fragmentation of Syria into different zones of influence which exist already on the ground. So I'm not saying divide Syria or partition it. It's already partitioned. But what I'm saying is recognize this temporary partition, which has already happened, but at least reduce the fighting and let's allow water to resume in Aleppo and let's allow hospitals to work and homes and things like that. So uh, the outsiders need to step in at some point and I don't see who these outsiders can be. I mean you have non-governmental people like, you know, the elders, you know, with Kofi Annan and Lakhtar Bahimi and, and the, the good people like that, and, but they, they don't have any power. And then you have, you know, NGOs and based in Geneva and based in Stockholm, and they, they don't have any power. They have ideas, they can facilitate things, but uh, uh, the European Union is not uh, anywhere. The Chinese, the other, there's nobody in the world who can step in right now. The UN is not a self-actor. The UN is a reflection of the world powers. Uh, so I don't see any process right now where people can agree on anything. I think we unfortunately have, we've allowed this situation to get to this point where so many people are actively fighting and the problem is they all see this as an existential battle. Everybody from the smallest Syrian group to the government, to the Russians, to the everybody, the Iranians, everybody sees this as existential. If they lose, they really lose big or they're out of this forever. So they can't afford to lose. They can't afford to stop fighting. So I don't, I don't have a solution to Syria. There's a lot of people who write in foreign policy and foreign affairs and with their solutions. I don't have a solution. I just don't see it. The only but when you look at historically problems like this, how do these things end? Either somebody wins and somebody loses, or they all get exhausted, or external powers step in and impose a solution. In Lebanon, you had some of all of those things happening. In South Africa and Northern Ireland and Colombia, they're trying now, it's not working. But So these conflicts end. They end one day. Either somebody wins and somebody loses, or the, everybody gets exhausted. They see it's stupid to just keep killing yourselves. Nobody's going to win. You might as well resolve it politically. 
But there is no there is no solution in sight because we don't have a clear agreement among the Syrian people because the Syrian people have never been consulted. They've never been asked what do they want by their own uh, government. So I'm very pessimistic uh, about Syria. So I think the priority is to defeat ISIS, but you can defeat ISIS in Raqqa and Mosul. But if you don't address those underlying drivers that give birth to them that I mentioned, we're going to just have something worse than ISIS or Qaeda uh, 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 come into being in the, in the decades uh, ahead. ISIS and Qaeda uh, and, and are the sixth or seventh manifestation of groups that arose out of discontented and ravaged societies with an Islamist bent to them over the last 50, 60 years. All kinds of groups, and almost every major new group that comes into being uh, has some Islamist link to them, whether they're Muslim Brothers, or Hezbollah, or Hamas, or Muqtada Sadr, or the Houthis, or the uh, uh, ISIS, and they're not all terrorists like ISIS is. Uh, some of them are national resistance groups, some of them are legitimate social uh, resistance groups, that, but they, they all have an Islamist tinge to them. That's very interesting. Um, the, Arab, the Arab nationalists have failed, the, the communists and the lefties have failed, the socialists, so you, uh, and, uh, and, the, and the right-wing uh, Arab Likudniks have failed. So the, the Islamic uh, veneer remains the critical one that uh, drives uh, pu public political activism on a mass scale, which makes me think that maybe the thing to do is to start engaging with some of these, um, I, would, I don't use the word moderate, but mainstream Islamist groups. Um, because they, in the end, are going to probably have the most legitimacy among, uh, among their people. Not Qaeda and ISIS, but others who are, who are less, uh, 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 less extreme. So I'm sorry, I don't have an answer for that. That's a very good insight. Thank you very much. Huh? It's very good insight. Thank yeah, for well, that, that meeting place that you want, just to, that starting point doesn't exist right now. Um, and, and Rahim and Karim, what you said absolutely is, uh, is correct. I, I agree with it uh, completely. Um, the, so uh, really the challenge we face is we have this dysfunction. We have these, and the dysfunction has now reached a very different stage than it was six or 15 years ago. I remember writing and talking about these issues 15, 20 years ago and six years ago, and it wasn't this bad. I mean, the situation is much, much worse now. You know, just at the level of environmental stuff, water, access to water. You can't imagine what a debilitating thing it is if you're a young family with three or four kids living in Cairo or Amman or Casablanca, and you turn on your thing and there's no water, and you have kids, and they need to be bathed and they need to drink water, and there's no water. What do you do? You panic. You go crazy. You'll, go, you'll do anything to get water for your kids. If somebody says, join my group, or come take this job in this corrupt government office, or smuggle some uh, hashish for me, or you'll do anything to get water to your kids. So environmental issues are much worse. Lack of jobs, um, labor, um, education, almost every sector is much, much worse than it is before. So the difficulty now is that even finding the starting point to turn the situation around is not so easy. It's really, really difficult. But it gets more difficult every year. Uh, it's like addiction, uh, you know, when you want to stop smoking, if you ever try to stop smoking. It gets more difficult until you decide you're going to do it. And then it's hard for a couple of weeks, and then things slowly start. I'm trying to lose weight. 
That's but similar, similar, e equally difficult. But once you start doing it, like I, I learned how to drink coffee without sugar about a, six to nine months ago, and it took me about 20 years to do that. Uh, but once I did it, I made the decision and I did it, and it and I had to get through three, four days, which were really traumatic, uh, but I survived. And now I'm, I drink my coffee without sugar and I'm a happy camper. Uh, so, you know, the sooner that people in Arab countries and their foreign supporters start addressing some of these issues, the, the better it is, because they're only going to get more, uh, more difficult. And the only way they can be addressed is by the people themselves, the citizens, being involved in that process. So I always say the beginning point of this is consulting your people, giving them an opportunity to, to speak out. What are their grievances? What are their suggestions? The, the local people know better than anybody else how to solve their problems if they're given a chance um, uh, to do so. Um, and and the, the whole linkage between national dysfunction and the global system, whether it's the uh, IMF or the UN or, or the banks or, or neoliberal uh, stuff, um, is, it's, it's been there now very clear. But that's been pretty, pretty well exposed now. I think people understand. And the Egyptians just did one more deal with the IMF. Let's see what, you know, what, what happens to that, uh, if they can fix their problems. And uh, the likelihood is very slim, I think, that the Egyptians can use the IMF loan with the uh, things they're required to do to actually turn around their difficult economic situation. When you have almost two million Egyptians born every year, every year there's almost two million Egyptians who are born. There's been about 10 million Egyptians born since the uprising of 2011. Uh, uh, 10 million new ones. They couldn't even feed and clothe and house and give jobs and educate the existing 80 million they had then. What about the 90 million now? And next year is going to be 92 million. Birth rates are rising in the Arab world, an extraordinary phenomenon. <clears throat> birth rates, fertility rates declined steadily from the 1980s and 90s until uh, about five years ago. And birth rates have now started rising again because poor, desperate people have more children because one of those kids is going to get a job and take care of you. Or some of these kids are going to die in war or uh, fleeing to Europe or something. So the, the fact that birth rates are rising again uh, is, I think, a really serious sign. And it's probably, a, 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 I mean, God bless every child who's born in the world, but it's probably a, a sign of trouble. When poor, stressed societies start having more children, it's going to just increase the, uh, the pressures. But again, these are the things that are there for people like the Fattest Center and the Fletcher School and Tufts University and AUB to study and understand and, and help us all uh, Rami, that resolve. makes it 456 Egyptians born since you started talking. Yes, I just got 456. 456. Well, I better stop talking then. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. This was okay. really a brilliant tour of the Thank horse. You. And, uh,